Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Brazil, the United Kingdom, the United States, and a see you in hell from the United Kingdom again. Starting out in the UK, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, is out for real. Uh, He gave his last big speech in front of Parliament, uh, which he concluded literally with the phrase, hasta la vista, baby, like, you know, from Terminator. I don't know. It's ridiculous. Anyway, the Conservative Party has held or is in the process of holding its election for the person who will be replacing Johnson as the leader of the Conservative Party and therefore also the leader of Parliament, the Prime Minister, because of how the United Kingdom's parliamentary system works. And the way that this works is that there was a vote within the parliament, essentially, among the leaders of the Conservative Party. And the two top vote-getters are Rishi Sunak and Elizabeth Truss, two Conservative Party officials that have been prominent players in the Johnson administration and also in previous administrations of the Conservative Party um, in the last couple of years. Rishi Sunak is ahead Uh, He would be the first non-white prime minister in United Kingdom history. He's sort of like a technocrat who became, you know, one of those sort of like unlikely sex symbol type people, you know, like like Henry Kissinger. He was super popular during the pandemic for a while. He's he's faded a lot in the public eye. Elizabeth Truss is a little bit more of a meat and potatoes type conservative. Uh, She opposes, you know, immigration changes to the United Kingdom, stuff like that. Uh, So we will have a new prime minister fairly soon. And depending on who it is, they might either be a somewhat more moderate figure than Johnson or a somewhat more conservative figure than Johnson. We're just going to have to see. Moving on to Brazil, the Brazilian federal government has agreed that the police officer, uh, Guaranyo, uh, who murdered uh, a member of the Workers' Party, Mene de Ruda, uh, which I spoke about last week, uh, is going to be charged with essentially the Brazilian equivalent of second-degree murder. You know, not manslaughter, not some lower charge. He, he's a murderer. Uh, this is the culmination of an escalation in the treatment of this investigation because it was conducted by the federal government and not by, you know, some local officials. They're treating this as a political crime, essentially, which is what it was. Further on in Brazil, and again, talking about the Brazilian federal system, uh, the Brazilian federal police have officially spoken to the Brazilian Congress and to the Brazilian people to promise that electronic voting is a safe and effective way to count votes in their country. Why do they have to do that? Well, it's because the current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, has been laying the groundwork to claim that the election will have been stolen from him uh, because of electronic voting. If you are familiar with the way that Donald Trump claimed that the votes in the United States were stolen from him, then you know that this is a page straight out of that playbook. This move by the federal police in Brazil is a serious blow to Bolsonaro, who probably could have used, A, the federal police as an ally in this attempt to, you know, make it seem legitimate, his claims that the election had been stolen from him. But it's also, like, important just that they got the word out there, you know, that there are people out there already, like right now, before Bolsonaro claims that the election has been stolen, uh, to say, like, no, it, 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 it can't have been stolen. That's not how electronic voting works. Speaking of attempts to steal elections, uh, we now move on to the United States, where Rudy Giuliani, a former Trump aide and, you know, former mayor of New York City during September 11th, you know, he has a weird 
and sort of like downward trajectory in power in the United States. Giuliani has now been ordered to testify in a Georgia election regarding tampering with the election in that state, specifically regarding Trump and other officials in the Trump administration's calls and attempts to officials in Georgia to try to get that state to change how it was counting its electoral votes and to essentially give Trump the state, you know, essentially to give him control over the state electorally, which would have made his 2020 election a lot more contested. Uh, he wouldn't have won just with Georgia, but but he focused a lot on Georgia because, you know, Georgia is a southern state and he believed that it was his by right, you know. Uh, so Giuliani has been required to uh, testify in front of them. We'll see if he does that. He has been ignoring the January 6th Special Investigation Committee for some time. Um, Steve Bannon has also been ignoring the January 6th Special Investigation Committee for some time. And as a result, he is on trial this week. He is on trial for contempt of Congress. Uh, this is a very interesting trial because it's very transparent that he's guilty. Like Bannon was on social media. He was on the news saying that he wasn't going to comply with the subpoena, saying that he wasn't going to talk to the committee. So like having a trial is, you know, not exactly necessary to determine his guilt, which is actually part of his argument. You know, his claim is that the trial is a political act and that it isn't necessary to establish his guilt and that, you know, bringing him in front of the court is like unfair, which is kind of ridiculous. You know, it's like, he committed a crime, and the crime was, I don't want to talk to you about the coup I planned, even though I am supposed to. And you know that I'm not going to talk to you about it, and you know that uh, I'm being obvious about the fact that I'm not going to talk to you about it, so I don't want you to take me to trial. It wouldn't be fair for you to put me on trial for the crime that I have obviously committed and have agreed that I've committed. It's, um, it's, it's, it's just really circular, like really, really encapsulates you know, that right-wing double-think. It, it, it's really amazing. Speaking of right-wing double-think, no member of the Republican caucus in the United States House of Representatives has voted to probe the United States military and the police forces in the United States for neo-Nazi and right-wing activity. This was an amendment that a member of Congress brought in front of Congress regarding the fact that, like, clearly... The members of the military and the police in the United States are being infiltrated and not just like infiltrated, but, you know, directly recruited by right wing organizations and that they need to be, you know, there needs to be some investigation to see to make sure that these members of the government, that these parts of the government are not like working with actual fascist organizations no member of the Republican Party voted for this. They, they said that they don't want this investigation. They don't want these groups to have to report this stuff. Uh, this is an obvious sign of two things. One, the increasing polarization of politics in the United States, like specifically just Republicans will vote against anything that the Democrats are in favor of. And of course, also, it signals that a lot of these Republicans know for a fact that their base supports this kind of activity. You know, they want the right wing to be in power through this kind of extra legal violence, and they don't want it to be reported. You know, they don't want sun, sun shining on this. Right? They, they just don't want people to know. And when it comes to parts of the United States government that are entrusted with securing democracy or maintaining the structure of the government, it's possible that none is higher than the Secret Service. And the news this week that we have gotten about their complicity in the coup 
is really astonishing, that this has probably been the biggest breaking story about the January 6th coup this week. Now, the news is that the Secret Service uh, essentially intentionally erased text messages from the day before the coup, January 5th, and the day of the coup, January 6th, 2021. After being ordered not to do so, they made that erasure on January 27th of 2021, and their claim is that it was because of some sort of like internal system migration, right? You know, like, oh, the process has changed, and, you know, we, we, we couldn't record our text messages and our phone calls and stuff in exactly the same way, and, you know, they, they, they were wiped in a routine way. This, of course, despite the fact that multiple branches of the United States government told them not to do this repeatedly after the coup, uh, and that they had all the eyes in the world on them after this. They also now claim that they couldn't possibly recover these text messages, like that they're, they're actually permanently erased, you know, from all databases everywhere permanently. The fact that the United States government and one of the more secretive and intensive branches of the United States government, the Secret Service, can't recover text messages that were sent not just in Washington, D.C., but like in the White House or in the Capitol building is, is it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it, obviously, something is being hidden intentionally here. The fact that they thought that it would be reasonable to erase these messages, it, I mean, it, it, it's astonishing. Uh, they must be hiding something that is worth this kind of obvious breach of their purview and their job. So clearly they're hiding complicity in their plans with Donald Trump to engage in this coup, right? What is it that they could be hiding? Could they have been hiding their attempts to abscond with Vice President Pence on the day of the coup, right? We're hearing more and more now about the fact that, like, Pence was not working with his Secret Service on January 6th. He, he wouldn't get in the cars that were being driven by them. He didn't trust them because he knew that they were working with Trump and that they were trying to take him away from the Capitol in order to prevent him from counting the electoral votes for, for Joe Biden. It's terrifying. Were, they, were, were the Secret Service trying to like hide their plans to take Donald Trump to the Capitol? Were they trying to hide that sort of like direct evidence of their complicity with his efforts to storm the Capitol building, a, a different branch of government? Were they trying to hide their internal plans about how they would get past the Capitol Police, which would reveal that they, a security branch of the United States government, were planning on how to breach a building that was being protected by a different security branch of the United States government? I mean, at that point, it would be impossible not to describe it as a coup for anybody uh, who is being reasonable. But of course, the point is that the right wing is not being reasonable about this. You know, they, they have no intention of being reasonable about these things. They want this violence. They want this coup. They want the cover-up. And they want Trump back in office. And the fact that the Secret Service is continuing to stonewall Congress, and not just Congress, but like a bunch of other branches of government, like the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, um, about this, it's it, it terrifying, actually. These are the people who are still in charge of security for people like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And as a historian, I am unfortunately in the position to have to tell you that a lot of palace coups uh, are staged by the people who are in charge of the security 
for leaders, right? Um, if you look up the behavior of Roman Praetorian guards, these are the, the people who were in charge of security for the emperor, they were often deeply involved in assassination plots or other plans to stage coups against emperors. And that historical comparison might sound or feel like hyperbole, but it isn't. We, we know that they were working with Trump. We know that they were helping work with the coup. We know that they had plans to help with it, at least parts of them. Uh, it, it's, it's terrifying, honestly. And finally, this week, the last bit of news about the United States is that a man was arrested and then released in the city of Seattle because he threatened and maybe attempted to kill uh, a Democratic representative of congressman named Jayapal. Uh, this man was yelling outside of the representative's house. He possibly fired a pellet gun outside of her house. Uh, she called the police because he was yelling slurs and firing weapons outside of her home. Uh, the police came and they arrested him. And then they let him go. Uh, they, they just let him go. You know, he showed up at a congressperson's house firing a gun and yelling racist threats. Representative Jayapal is the first South Asian American to be elected to Congress. Um, they let him go because they were like, well, you know, we don't know what he said and we don't know what he did. Which like, you know, sure, yes. And as somebody who is deeply skeptical of how the police forces work and how the American judicial and prison systems work, yes, I agree. Obviously, the police hold a lot of people on extremely dubious evidence and hearsay. But the fact that they, you know, exercised that kind of doubt in this case and not others is extremely telling. Also extremely telling is the fact that the Seattle police force, uh, by percentage, had the largest contingent at the January 6th coup on 2021. So, yeah, um, things are things are really escalating here. Uh, this is this this is getting terrifying and dangerous. All right, I'm going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week we're talking about John Tyndall, uh, who is the founder and leader uh, for the longest time of the British National Party. Tyndall was born in Devon, which is in southwest England, and he lived with his family in Northern Ireland as Unionists, so that is, people who were loyal to the British government as opposed to the Republic of Ireland. He did okay at school, but was much better as a sportsman. He did his national service, which was required at the time, in West Germany, where he initially became enamored of socialism, but eventually of the legacy of fascism. Uh, after that, after his service in Germany, he read Mein Kampf and essentially became a fascist. He was the chairman of the National Front and then the British National Party, the BNP, uh, which he led to become the largest fascist organization in the United Kingdom. He had previously been a member of several other far-right organizations in the United Kingdom, uh, including one that was run by A.K. Chesterton, a relative of conservative intellectual G.K. Chesterton, who is the author of the Father Brown Mysteries, most prominently. So, like I said, under Tyndall, the BNP became the leading right-wing group in the United Kingdom, and Tyndall had a reputation for being a hardliner. You know, he was an out right-wing white nationalist, and essentially a neo-Nazi. He engaged in a lot of internal struggle in the BNP in the 1990s because of essentially like other people in the BNP wanted to moderate 
they wanted to change how the party was working in order to possibly get more people behind them. But he was a hardliner. He, he didn't want to make any compromises. He wanted no Jewish members. He wanted no non-white members, even partially non-white members. He, he, he didn't want any of that. He was eventually ousted in one of these moderating pushes, uh, but he remained part of the party and wrote for their newsletters and things like that. He challenged their leadership again in the early 2000s, uh, but to no avail. And at one of these BNP meetings, which was recorded, he said a bunch of terrible racist stuff, uh, which actually led him to being charged with inciting racial hatred, which is a crime in the United Kingdom. Uh, and he was, you know, going to be brought up on trial for this. That also led to him being finally and permanently expelled from the British National Party uh, right before his trial. But right before his trial, he died of heart failure. This week in history, 19th of July, 2005, literally a couple of days before he was supposed to stand trial. So, John Tyndall, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. And again, I want to emphasize, I'm getting reviews from fascists now uh, that are trying to bury the podcast. Uh, if you do like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. And at fascism 15, that's again, 15 spelled out, all one word. All right. I will talk to you next week. Bye.